Thanks for joining us at Mountainside, anywhere. We're praying that God will use this teaching to reveal himself to you in his word. Through it, may you see him more clearly, know him more fully, and trust him more deeply. As always, we are here to serve. Please reach out through mountainside.online if there's a specific way we can come alongside to pray, help, or encourage throughout the week. Let's join Pastor Dave now as he continues our study in the book of Mark. Well, have you been hearing any uh, rapture talk? Anything on Facebook or social media? I hear the Euphrates is drying up and and, uh, must mean the rapture is close. I've heard... uh, it started off, have you seen what's happening in Israel? And so there's, uh, anybody else hear any of these things? Yes, uh, it's all over the place. Well, I'm going to start a weather page. And uh, I'm going to start it in December. And I can already tell you what my forecasts are going to be. Um, all signs point to heavy snow and high winds. Get ready. And you say, well, what are the signs? Well, it's cold. It's going to be cold in February. And Heavy snow and high winds can come when it's cold. And how many of you are impressed? How many days would you follow my weather page? You'd be right back at Tony's weather page. And as soon as you saw uh, this, what was happening. And what if I said, well, but, but you know, one of those days I'm going to be right. You know, and so uh, um, you should pay attention because at some point I'll be right. And I think this is what's been happening for about 60 years with the so-called signs of the rapture, of which the Bible doesn't give any signs. All the signs that we, we mentioned a few of them last week in the Olivet Discourse are for the second coming, which happens after the rapture. The rapture doesn't even exist when Jesus is talking about the signs to a Jewish group of people in the nation of Israel about when the kingdom would be coming. So here's my story. In the late 60s, I was, uh, I guess it was even before I was a teenager, I went to a prophecy conference with my dad, and uh, it was heady things. I mean, Israel became a nation in 1948, which seemed impossible, right out of the Holocaust after World War II. And then in the 60s, if you were around then, it seemed like the world was falling apart besides the fact of the Cold War. In the United States, we were, uh, inflation was going on, high interest rates. Um, there were riots and marches uh, for all kinds of things, for uh, racial um, equality, for gender equality, for, um, you know, that uh, women were marching, um, gender issues, all all kinds of things. People were marching because of the war. Uh, Soldiers were dying in Vietnam, and it didn't seem like the government was interested in really winning, was out to win, and yet our young people were were dying. Uh, Cities were burning, all of these things going on. Uh, Leaders were being assassinated. We lost Martin Luther King. We lost Robert Kennedy. Um, The John F. Kennedy's assassination was just in the rearview mirror. And so Russia seemed on the rise, and so there was this Gog-Magog, which is Russia. And this is what was said in that conference. Russia's plan is to take over the United States and fly a sickle and hammer at the nation's capital um, in 1976, which would be the 200th anniversary of our country. 
And then the person said, and they're ahead of schedule. I don't know where they got the schedule, um, you know, but it, it made sense. It really made sense. It just seemed like everything was, uh, was falling apart around us. And so I remember my friend and I, we figured we were going to go to the gulag. And uh, we, you know, we were reading all of these uh, um, Russian prisoner books. And uh, so we started memorizing scripture. That was the one good thing that came out of it. You know, I memorized James and First John and, and a lot of chapters of John. So when we went into prison, we could take the Bible with us since we wouldn't be allowed to have a Bible. I remember hearing um, around this time um, that John F. Kennedy was the Antichrist. He had been shot four years earlier, but he wasn't really dead. He was in Parkland Hospital, and his dad built a wing, and Jackie had visited there a couple times and all of this kind of stuff. And I don't know if any of that was true. And by the way, his name adds up to 666. Um, in the 90s, it was the Gulf War. Um, I remember I was a manager of software development at a company, and I look up, and people are lined up at my door. And they all at once say, is this in the Bible, this whole war thing? And uh, can we have a Bible study? Can we learn about what the Bible says about what's going on? If you remember right, the war ended really quick, so the interest kind of went off the, off the chart. And a lot of publishers uh, were publishing books. Walbert had written a book, Armageddon Oil in the Middle East Crisis, and it was popular, and they thought this war was going to go on, so they printed thousands and thousands of books and for years after that you could buy like a whole case of those books for like five dollars there were just so many in the early 90s was the uh, left behind series um there were uh, there's 1408 pages which is twice the length of the of the bible um i'm sorry i didn't even say that right um 4,950 4, pages, um, a million and a half words, of which there's only 11,000 in the book of Revelation. In other words, it's a story, but I actually, in 97, decided I would preach through Revelation on a Sunday evening, and the church attendance increased like two and a half times, and it, it bothered me that uh, people were more interested in in uh, trumpets and bowls and that kind of stuff than they were about prayer, um, becoming Christ-like. What I really discovered in my study of Revelation is all the things I knew about the tribulation weren't in the Bible. You know, there's a lot of speculation and versus what it actually really says. 9-11, another round of books. Um, Harold Camping, I don't know if that name means anything to you, but in the uh, early 90s, he wrote a book, 1994, um, that the Lord would come. He did not believe in a rapture, but that the Lord would come in 1994, and he didn't. So he went back to study, and then he became absolutely sure that May 21st, 2011, you can go to that next slide, he was, uh, the rapture was going, or the, the Lord was going to come, and the nations would be judged. And the billboard right outside the Vet Stadium in Philadelphia had Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011. And May 21st came, and the next day on May 22nd, 2011, was that billboard was replaced by, well, that was awkward. Um, 
there were people that had quit their jobs. There were people that had taken all of their wealth and poured it into uh, what he was doing to get the word out. It was a devastating thing for some people. So through the years, the last 60 years, I've been hearing about the preparation of the priesthood in Israel, the breeding of the red heifer, uh, the tabernacle being discovered in Ethiopia, articles of sacrifice hidden under the dome of the rock, people returning to Israel. Uh, just last week, somebody was saying about the Euphrates River um, and asked me what I think. And I said, well, what will you say about the Euphrates years down the road? I said, come Sunday, I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Then there's the talk of the mark of the beast. When I was a teenager, um, a person spoke and said, uh, don't take a number. Like you go to the butcher or the deli and you take a number. That's just setting us up for the mark of the beast. And uh, so look, and you're between 22 and 23, and so you step up and say, my name is David Peterson, and I am not taking a number, um, and I'm between 22 and 23. Uh, then came scanners, you know, and barcodes, and yikes, mark of the beast. And then credit cards, and debit cards, and then chips, and easy pass and all of these things. I actually pay with my watch. I don't even take my wallet out. And so it, it's about that much difference if I had a chip right here. I just go boop and uh, pay for my bill. I almost hate to even say this, but have you heard of the Rapture Index? There's a website that tells, supposed to tell how the signs are. Um, so 10 years ago, I preached and I had said this that the rapture index, it was February 18th, 20, or it was, it was later in the year, but it was uh, 189, and that the high before had been 188. I just actually looked, and it's 189 uh, this week. Um, some friends and I kind of discovered it back in the 90s. It's been uh, in the 180s since it began. So this is what they say. The rapture index is the Dow Jones Industrial Average of end-time activity. The higher the number, the faster we're moving towards the occurrence of pre-tribulation rapture. It's 100 or below, uh, slow prophetic activity, 100 to 130, moderate, 130 to 160, heavy prophetic. Um, and uh, if it's over 160, fasten your seatbelts. Now, I know it's been over 160 for 25 years. <laughs> so I hope your seatbelt has been fastened. So every day for 25 plus years, this web page has been saying fashion. Sound, kind of brings to mind my weather page, doesn't it? Get ready, get ready, get ready. Um, now, you may think, boy, he doesn't like the rapture, does he? If you've ever been to communion, I end every communion with saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The last days, in my opinion, are the seven years before the millennium, when we switch back to a Jewish, a Israel um, economy. The church is gone. So for 76 years, since 1948, last year I was in Israel, and Israel turned 75. When I was young, we were told that, you know, the, when the fig tree blooms, uh, this generation will not pass away. And so we were told that a generation is 30 years, and that was why 
uh, surely the Lord will come for his people before 1978. And now, if a child was born on that day, that child is 76 years old. We're going to have to change that whole idea of the fig tree blooming. And and we recognize that um, these signs occur after the rapture. What what do we do with verses when the Bible says, um, in the last days there will be difficult times, 2 Timothy 3.1 and 2 Peter 3.1. And as pastors, we say, well, can't you see it? But wouldn't people have said, can't you see it during World War I? during World War II, during the Black Plague, during the Hundred Years' War, during what would they have said in the 200 years after the Lord came, the last days? We have to be in the last days. Now, uh, one commentary that I looked at this week to see what people were saying, and, and I think this actually fits. In a sense, the last days are from Christ's death to his, or Christ's resurrection to his return for his people. Because the prophecies now are waiting for that, that time, as we discussed a little bit last week with the Olivet Discourse. And here's the hard thing. We have called ourselves dispensationalists. But dispensationalists, it seems to have, at least in our public image, to have lost our distinctive. Instead of it being about the fact that we literally interpret the scripture. If it says it, we take it. We have become a speculating people, speculating about future events. Signs for the believer. Let's go to the next, the next slide, Acts 1, 6 through 8. I, I talked about this last week. So when the apostles were with Jesus, right before he's going to heaven, if you remember last week we talked about this, And what's their question? So is now the time, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore the kingdom? We use that as one of the proof texts that show that God has not replaced Israel with the church because they're talking about freeing Israel and they're talking about the kingdom and that God has not uh, canceled the kingdom. And Jesus answers with this. The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. Now, this is hypothetical, but I would imagine the disciples said, uh, well, how can we know when it's close? What would Jesus say? It's not for you to know. What does he say? It's not for you to know, but you receive the Holy Spirit, and you're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So Jesus, will we know when it's close? It's not for you to know. You're to be my witnesses. Well, if we looked for signs, we could probably tell when it's close, right? I mean, someday they're going to invent TV, and then we'll be able to see everywhere in the world. And so when we see that every eye will see, I remember in the 60s saying, well, now we have round-the-world reporting, so we'll... We'll be able to see it, so it's got to be close. What would Jesus say to that? It's not for you to know. You are to be my witnesses. Oh, but Jesus is so interesting when we see these inventions and things that help us to think, oh, that's what it's going to be like. What would Jesus say? It's not for you to know. Be my witnesses. Now, what about the rapture? 
And I, I have mentioned this word a few times, and I have actually preached a whole message on eminence. What is not eminent? Eminent is not eminent is when my, my dad would say, I'll be home at 6.30. That's not eminent. That means I have time. Um, or I'll call before I come home is not eminent. In other words, when we say the rapture is close, uh, signs point to the rapture, Jesus is giving us time to get ready, that is not eminent. We are actually speaking about the rapture in a way that I believe is different than the way the New Testament speaks about the Lord's coming for his people. Imminent is saying, I will come home. Now, I remember my dad one time saying, uh, Mom and I are going out, and we want these things done when we get home. So the choice was to do it right away, because there was no time given, and I chose the latter to where I was laying on my bed reading Treasure Island. I remember it very well. Uh, when my parents walked in the door and those things weren't done. So Ruthie, Ruthie and I used to vacation together. When we had children, uh, she was able to uh, go to Scroon Lake. I'm pointing like as, as if I'm preaching in New Jersey. She would come to Scroon Lake when we lived in New Jersey. And uh, so she was up for a week, and I was getting up, going to work. And the day before she came back, I looked around the house, and it was like a disaster. Like, what did I do? You know, I was trying to cook things, and so it was, it, every pan, every dish, it just was unbelievable what a mess I had made. And uh, then I thought, what if she comes early? What if she comes, like, to surprise me? Um, and she would be the one with a surprise. So I called the house, called the Methys, and I said, Dad, could I speak to Ruthie? In other words, we didn't have cell phones, so she couldn't be, like, you know, a mile away and saying, yeah, we're getting ready to leave. Uh, I called the house, and so I knew she was there, so I knew I had at least six hours to get the place ready, knowing that I would never have it ready, ready, like Ruthie ready. You know what I mean, guys? I'd have it David ready, but not Ruthie ready. See, imminent means that at any moment the Lord could come, and it's always been that way. His coming is as close today as it was when Peter wrote 2 Peter. Let me read you some passages. 1 Corinthians 1.7, you eagerly wait for the return of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 16, our Lord come. Philippians 3.20, we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. Philippians 4.5, remember the Lord is coming soon. James 5, 8, for the coming of the Lord is near. I love verse 9. Look, the judge is standing at the door. You see, it's for the rapture to occur, it's just stepping into the door to gather the saints. 1 John 3, verse 2, when Christ appears... Revelation four times says, I'm coming soon. It, the Bible ends with, come Lord Jesus. When I was a sophomore in high school, I remember deciding I was going to try to read the New Testament in a month. And I started reading, and I got to 1 John chapter 2, 
and I was laying on my bed, and I read this verse. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, the New Living Translation says return, which is sort of the same, but this idea of, of appear, this quick, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him at his coming. Here's the, here's the deal. The Bible does not tell us to get ready for the Lord's return. The Bible tells us to be ready for the Lord's return. And there's a huge difference. Get ready means I have time and maybe I can even indulge for a little while longer before I get ready. Be ready means any moment the Lord could come and I be ready. I have a ritual most mornings. I look through the blinds for the bathroom, and I look at the glow on the eastern horizon. Depending by the time of the year, sometimes tiny glow. Other times, it's like the sun's already up at 5 a.m. And I think two things. One is God's mercies are new every morning, and that today could be the day Christ returns. You see, it's not a, it's not a fact of the, the idea that uh, uh, if we're not looking for signs... The, the point is, is that eminence means signs don't mean anything. There are no signs. It's, he's going to walk in the door at any moment. And so the believer is to live a life ready. This means that living a life with the ever-present return of the Lord. You can go to the next. And so life is really like a match. You light a match, and it has wonderful uses. It gives light, it gives warmth and comfort. It can light a stove or a fire for food. It can light a candle for atmosphere. But a match can also start a forest fire. It can burn out down a house. It can uh, cause terrible things to come about. And think about the idea of only having one match. Now, I used to go camping a lot, and, I'm, and I haven't camped for a while, and I'm thinking this summer I need to start again with my grandson. And so when I get ready to go camping, I have a pack of matches in every pocket of my clothing, in my jacket pockets, every pocket of my backpack, and like six packs of matches in the main. I will never run out of matches. Some are a little waterproof because the idea of one match left is horrifying. And so if you just have one match, think how careful you are with that one match. Watch somebody light their one match, and they're so careful, and everything is set up, and they're trying to shield the wind. The, the Christian life, the life, a life is like a match. You have one life. You can't relight a match. You can't relive your life. And so the, let's go to, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, and we're going to talk about what happens when we die or the Lord comes. What is next? First Corinthians 3, 10, because of God's grace to me, I laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it, but whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, which is Jesus Christ. So our life 
And the actions of our life are like building a building. And we are building our life, building our building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, whoever builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials. Gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw, or stubble, some of your Bibles say. Two categories. They are eternal things, and they are temporal things. They are precious, and they're common. They're quality, and they're inferior. It's very obvious which category each thing be, belongs in. And it says, on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. A day is coming when each person in this room will stand before the Lord to give an account of their life. Now, if you're a believer, it's not about your sin because your sin has been dealt with at the cross. It's about your life. What were the things that you did with the life? Were they gold things or were they hay things, wood things? There's an emphasis here. It says multiple times, any man or each man. It also talks about this emphasis of being revealed. It will be evident. It will show to be revealed, will test. And so the point is, is that our life will somehow be represented in a pile or a building or whatever, and fire is applied, and it will show the results of our life. If the work survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, now listen to this phrase, the builder will suffer great loss. You see, between the time we die or the Lord returns in the rapture to eternity beginning, some will suffer great loss. We don't talk about that a lot. It doesn't just say loss, it says great loss. You see, to stand before the Lord and to realize you have nothing to show for your life will be an awful moment. Let's go to another passage that's similar that will help us to flesh this out more. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. So whether we are here in the body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. The goal of, the life, of our life is to please the Lord. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or the evil we've done in this earthly body. Because we understand, now the New Living, the New Living Translation says our fearful responsibility to the Lord. But the way the Greek is constructed, and you see this in other English translations, it really is talking about the, not the fearful work, but the fear of the Lord. Knowing the fear of the Lord. Knowing the gravity of this moment, we work hard to persuade others. God knows we are sincere, and we hope you know this. Knowing the fear of the Lord, suffering great loss. Between our death or the Lord's return and eternity, there will be some 
believers that will experience great loss. And the two categories of building materials are gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. So what are gold things? What are those things that the Lord is looking for? Well, I, I just made a list this week um, of the priorities of God. Um, first, the two greatest commandments, love God and love your neighbor. Those would be gold things, Matthew twenty two, thirty nine. 39. Uh, forgiving people. Pastor Lyle spoke a couple weeks ago about, about forgiveness. Uh, reconciling people to Christ. This is where the passage goes. It talks about standing before God and, and that we must please the Lord. And then right away it says our job is to reconcile people to the Lord, which is exactly what Jesus said to the disciples. It's not for you to know, but you're to be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Gold things would be uh, discipling others, 2 Timothy 2, 2. Gold things would be living the one another's, loving, greeting, meeting the needs, teaching, discipling. Um, Matthew 25 is, I believe, speaking about the judgment for entering into the kingdom. And there are these values that are going to go into the kingdom. And they are this, meeting the needs of hungry, thirsty, and needy people. You see somebody thirsty, you give them something to drink. You see somebody hungry, you feed them. You see somebody in need of clothing, you give them clothes. Welcoming a stranger, visiting the sick, and visiting the prisoner. Those are the priorities of the judge. And the people are like, and Jesus is, is expressing this personal gratitude that you visited me when I was in prison. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus said, when you did it to the least, you did it to me. He really seems to not be saying for me. It is how we serve Jesus. When you wash a person's feet, you're washing Jesus' feet. When you feed a person, you're feeding Jesus. Galatians 6.2, bearing other burdens, others' burdens. Praying for others, James 5.16. We also see in 1 Corinthians 13 this really jarring news that if you are a wonderful speaker, but you don't have love, your speech is wood, hay, and stubble. If you're a gifted person and you have all of the spiritual gifts and you exercise them without love, they're wood, hay, and stubble. If you give all of your money and if you even give your body to be a martyr without love, wood, hay, and stubble. You see, a lot of times when we think about what is a priority of the Lord, we think about results and so many of these things aren't necessarily going to even see results. Uh, earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about some plant, some water, and some reap. And I've told the story that for five and a half years, I worked in Center City, Philadelphia. And everyone in the, in the art department, at least, and many in the company knew I was a believer and many spiritual conversations, but I never led somebody to the Lord there. Then I went to work at the church, and my second or third year at the church, my, 
former boss called and said, hey, how would you like to be a consultant and work one day a week and make, make great money? So I talked to the pastor, and I was getting ready to take some seminary courses, so my day off, I went. And before I got to my desk, two people had come up and said, hey, Dave, just wanted you to know I trusted Christ last year. So I was a planter, or maybe a waterer, but I wasn't part of that harvest. But both are doing what God has called us to do to bring people to reconciliation. So let's talk about what the rewards are. And the first is there's a series of crowns. So we stand before the Lord, we give an account of our life, and there are these rewards. There is the victor's crown, which is uh, for those who persevere, those who cross the finish line, those who finish well. 1 Corinthians 9, 25 through 27, all athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. And so instead of getting a crown that perishes in the Olympics or whatever, we're, we're after a crown that does not perish. Then there's the crown of righteousness for those who abide, for those who eagerly look forward to his coming, those who are always have in the presence of their mind that Jesus could return now. That's why, think of 1 John 2.28, what I read, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him is coming. You know how many times in the last 50 years that verse has come up to mind when I get ready to do something I probably shouldn't do? When he appears and finds me doing something that brings me shame. There's the crown of life. Some have called this the martyr's crown. It appears that it, it, it talks of testing and temptation, but probably in the context of, of suffering and persecution. Then there's the crown of rejoicing, which I'm not sure is a crown, because a crown can also refer to a reward. And Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians 2 that you are my crown of rejoicing, that seeing people in heaven that you had a part in their spiritual progress, that will be your crown. So I'm not sure that that one is one that we wear. And then there's a crown of glory and honor that are given to shepherds, to pastors, who served unselfishly and served as an example. But there's one more that we have kind of lost in our, I think, in part because of our rapture fever, there's actually a book called Rapture Fever that, it, that is critical of all of this stuff. And this is the reward of being a participant in the kingdom. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. This is a trustworthy saying. This is a confusing verse if you don't know about the kingdom. If we die with him, we'll also live with him. I think this is Romans 6. Uh, where his death, my death, his resurrection, my resurrection. This is salvation. If we endure hardship, we will reign with him. There are a number of passages that speak of, a God, of Jesus sharing his throne, his seat with followers. If we deny him, he'll deny us. You can't go into the kingdom. If we're unfaithful, would we lose our salvation? No, he's faithful. He cannot deny who he is. Now, when I preach through the book of Hebrews, uh, I think it's the fourth message of that series, I came to the first warning pas passage in Hebrews 3, and there's five warning passages. And if you read them, 
at first it sounds like you can lose your salvation. And so I said, I'm going to preach one message on the eternal security of the believer, and then every time you get to a warning passage, I'm going to say, go listen to that message. And actually, during that time, Paul Weaver came up and said, uh, I have a paper that I wrote on just that very thing, but I address the five passages and that these are called, talking about our inheritance and our reigning with Christ. And so I'm going to make these available to you. They're actually available now on the, on the Facebook page. Here's, here's the challenge with those verses. Is Pentecostals believe that you can be saved and lose your salvation? Because there are sure a lot of verses that say that you can forfeit. And so I remember talking to a, a Pentecostal friend and I said, so you're saying you could, be, you could live the Christian life, you'd be a missionary, and then um, you do one sin and cross the street and get hit by a bus and you go to hell? His answer was kind of like, well, that's not what, really what it means. God would not let that happen. Um, it's talking about, about lifestyle, about, but it doesn't say those things. The other is in Reformed doctrine, they speak of perseverance of the saints. Now, there are parts of that doctrine that I would, would agree to. They don't believe that you can lose your salvation. They just believe that you really don't know if you're saved until the end. Did you persevere all the way through? Uh, a longtime family friend, I mean, that, that I grew up with, my best friend until age 15 when we moved up here, his father died, and one of the siblings is a Reformed pastor, and he spoke of his perseverance to the end. Not perseverance for most of the time, but perseverance to the end. Um, Now, some of them would, would disagree maybe with some nuances of what I said. If we understand the millennium and an invitation to serve Christ, we realize that the warnings are not about salvation. They're about reigning. Now, years ago, well, let me, let me finish up with this passage that you have behind you. You know, um, this idea of if we endure hardship, if we persevere, if we continue to abide, if we, if we stay ready, we will reign with him. Again, between death and eternity, there is going to be a kingdom for a thousand years in which Christ will reign. Um, some of you will not understand, but there was a book that came out in the late 80s called The Gospel According to Jesus, written by John MacArthur. And it created a huge controversy. And I was on a pastor's conference, and uh, there was a lot of uh, attacking of, of uh, great Bible teachers in that book, one of them being Dr. Ryrie, and our family was friends with Dr. Ryrie, and it just became this really huge deal. So I was at a pastor's conference, and Earl Rodmacher was the special speaker, and we talked about Dr. Ryrie, and so we had this connection, um, and so somehow late at night, we found ourselves alone, and so we started talking about this, and he said, reminded me, because I remember hearing this from Dr. Master at the BI, the gospel parables are about kingdom. There is no church. There is no rapture about being invited to come 
in. And he made this statement. He says, if you're in heaven, if you're in the Lord's presence, and you watch Jesus mount the white steed and the other believers to go to reign on earth for a thousand years and right every wrong and bring all of human history to a grand conclusion, you will gnash your teeth. That will be a great loss to not be invited to be part of the kingdom. Now, let's look at a passage as we bring this to a close. 2 Peter 1, um, verse 3 through 11. I'm just going to emphasize three points. And again, there's, as Pastor Lyle said last week, there's 50 things I could say about everything that I say. Um, I actually stopped reading and preparing for this because it just was building frustration as I would highlight things and say, can't say that, can't say that, can't say that. So by his divine power, you see, everything, I, let, me, let me start again. Everything I've said up to this point could cause you to feel great um, make you afraid oh my goodness you know this is really serious stuff it is serious but I want you to look at first Peter so you're not afraid it's not to heap guilt on you it's not to make you so scared that you do what I want you to do that's the big sin from the pulpit is that I try to coerce you into doing something by using tactics that aren't biblical. So here is the way the Bible responds to that whole pressure, if you want to call it. And it says this in chapter, verse 3 of 2 Peter 1. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need to live a godly life. Has given past tense. Now, our life is a life of growth. Our life is a life of maturing. But each of you and me have everything we need to live a godly life. And then Paul goes on to, to uh, um, we've received this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and, ex and excellence. Now, jump down to verse 9 because of time. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their sins. This is not talking about salvation. This is talking about people whose sins have been forgiven. Now, one of the books I'm going to recommend if you want to, if you want to go pretty deep is by uh, D Dr. Dillow. And I think I forgot to change. So in the thing I posted this morning, spell corrected, change Dillow to Dylan and Dillow to Willow. So it's not Dr. Willow or Dr. Dylan. I'll go in and change it today. It's not talking about cleansing us from our sins. But he goes through the entire New Testament, all of these passages. So, dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you are really among those God has called and chosen. Do these things, you will never fall away. To prove that you are already, not to be. Then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom, there it is again, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now the way Dillard 
draws it is that there is the thousand-year kingdom, but then in the new heaven and new earth, the kingdom extends. And so that's why in, in uh, 2 Samuel 7, when Nathan comes to David with the word from God, God says, your throne is eternal. It's not just the millennial throne, but it's, it's the throne of David throughout eternity. You see, God's desire is for you, each person in this room, to receive the crowns, to have a life that when the fire is applied, there remains gold, silver, and precious stones. His desire is for you to be a part of his reigning and ruling on the earth for that thousand years. The match burns once. We have one we have one life. And the question is, how will you live your life? The life is being ready. So God the Father has equipped you everything you need. The Holy Spirit empowers you. And so as you live life, the Holy Spirit will keep you sensitive to that's not a gold thing, that's a gold thing. Now don't get messed up with this. We're not talking about results. Uh, there are a few things more gold than playing with your children, giving priority to the things that are important. And Jesus showed us the way. He lived that life. I said last week for 30 years before he began his public ministry, he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. God's given us the word to guide us. God's given us the Christian family to disciple us and to encourage us and to show us the way. God has given us everything that we need to live that life, that godly life to be pleasing to him. And so my challenge today is, is not, to, not to make you feel beat up, but to make you feel encouraged that this is an amazing opportunity. This is an amazing thing that God wants you to succeed and he has given you everything that you need. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your patience that though we fail so often, and yet you are long-suffering. You love us as the perfect father who loves his children. You discipline us to keep us moving forward in a way that's pleasing to you. God, help us to be faithful. Help us to not be caught up in the, in the whims of our culture. Help us to be always focused on the fact that we are living a life to be pleasing to you. And that means loving our wife. That means respecting our husband. That means training up our children. That means being a good neighbor. That means being involved in all of the things that are priority of loving our neighbor. Help us not to get um, unfocused, but to always recognize that at any moment you could return. So, Father, we pray as saints have prayed since the Last Supper. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We look forward to your return. In Jesus' name, amen.